Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 169th episode of the Truth Island Podcast. When we think of impressionable people, our minds often navigate to some of our most vulnerable populations. Images of children trying to emulate the latest fad, teenagers engaging in troublesome behavior in order to appear cool, or maybe a college student trying to use big words in order to sound more intelligent to his professors. Impressionable often implies that one is susceptible to being duped or tricked into something that they may not otherwise partake in. Oftentimes, cult leaders will target the poor, uneducated, and young, as they are often the most easily to persuade. Ideally, as a person grows older, they will have hopefully learned from their experiences and become less trusting of outside influences. However, another set of danger that opens up is that those who have learned from their experiences not to believe others risk becoming closed-minded individuals. A person who has been burned repeatedly by others might eventually develop the habit of dismissing all sorts of people and ideas that might actually turn to be beneficial to them. On one hand, the unimpressionable, calloused individual never risks being tricked into believing foolish ideas or, or schemes, but on the other hand, may never open themselves up enough to grow and develop. Helping to make sure that I remain open-minded, but not too gullible, I am once again joined by Kenny. Kenny, let me ask you this question. Is it better to be a loser in life because you were too trusting or to become a loser in life because you never trusted? <sighs> um... <laughs> Sorry, I kind of just like sprung that one at you. Yeah, that's a, that's a... That's like you know. Would you rather be? Would you rather be shot in the head? It's like, would you would you rather melt to death or freeze to death? Kind of situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it all that, I, that's it's all bad. But if I had to choose, um, I would say it's better not to be born at all because those are just horrible ways to <laughs> horrible ways to end up. Um, but you, you find that the the effects of a person who's been too trusting. And one who has not been trusting at all, if, even if they both their life ends up the same way because of their behaviors, you may find that the person who is trusting is actually still happier in the end. So um, I would say that it's it's better it's better it's better to go with the um, with the one that has at least some something good coming out of it. I, I like I feel a tinge of optimism, which is refreshing, Kenny. I love I love hearing your optimism. Um, okay, let, let's talk about where the word impressionable lands today. So I think the word impressionable today has very negative connotation. We often use the word, oh, well, the impressionable kid was tricked into taking drugs or joining a gang or joining a cult or whatever it is. So impressionable has a very negative affectation just in, in how we see it because what, what does it imply? I think it implies that one lacks knowledge of themselves and therefore they're impressionable to everything else around them for better or worse. Would you agree with that? One lacks. Like they one. lack an inner, like the reason why we think the young are impressionable is because they, they don't really know who they are and therefore they're, they're, they're kind of like trying a lot of things out to, to discover who they are. I mean, that's, that's how I think someone is impressionable. They just, they, they don't know who they are. They don't know what they believe in their core values, what they stand for. And if you don't, if you don't know yourself, you're going to be open to everything and anything that comes your way. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think, um, yeah, the impressionable mind is always looking is 
so it's a it's an empty slot and um what what you have there is you know um impressions being made upon them by others and um but i don't think i do believe that it's 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 something that happens to a young mind it's something that happens you know, i think it's something that's supposed to happen to a young mind at the same time it's not totally a, a, you know a naivety or a um or, or, or a sense that it doesn't really necessarily mean that the person hasn't thought, thought through some things because you could, you could be a person, you could be your own man or your own woman and still be, you know, and still be um, subject to, um, how you say, to the impression of another, you know, simply because we admire them. You know, when you like someone, when you care, when you, when you look up to someone, even if you have your own thoughts, you're you're still there's still there's this there's still a, a place where where their 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 own their own you know uh, their own ways of doing things or their own thoughts and their own words um, has a significant effect on on the way you do your own thing or the way you the way you see the world. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree with that, and I, I think well, here's where kind of. So I would say that being impressionable is more of a personality trait than anything else, right? Like some people are more impressionable than others. And that's true for like, you could have two 16 year olds. One 16 year old will be a complete skeptic and question everything and be like, I don't believe a word anyone, anyone says. And the other one will just absorb it like a sponge. And this can be both a, you know, a good or a bad thing. So if you're a highly impressionable person, if you are put, if you were born into good circumstances, like let's say your father is an outstanding individual, you have like great mentors, great teachers, a great gym, great coach, gym teacher, that's a positive thing. Like your personality trait is actually helping you out because you're surrounded by good people and now you're absorbing a lot of positive qualities and a lot of positive traits. Conversely, you could have a personal personality trait for being highly impressionable, but if you're born into dysfunctional circumstances, then that might be formulating you in some very negative ways. So it's almost as if like, you know, I, you know, I hate to say it, but it's, it's one of these instances where you're given a set of genetics and those genetics could actually work in your favor or work against you, depending on, you know, the, the particular environment that you find yourself in. Well, that's why a bit of a good, it just, let's just say that that's, that, that is in fact the case for, for some people that they, they find themselves to be um, inordinately impressionable. It's a matter of knowing yourself. If you know, if you, if you can admit to yourself, that this is the kind of person you are. I mean, I think that's already, that's already a great deal of, uh, um that's a great deal of a, a safeguard and uh you kind of hopefully use it to your own advantage where you can not only surround yourself with people that will make the right kind of impressions on you but you you read the right kind of books and you experience you you, you surround yourself with the you, yeah you surround yourself with the right kind of materials that would um that be more of a uh, more of an asset to you than a detriment See, I like, I like the words that you used, asset versus detriment, because you could probably trick an impressionable person into thinking a detriment is an asset. You know what I mean? Like, I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a highly impressionable teenager and somebody says, hey, you know, try this, try these drugs. It'll help you pick up girls or it'll help you feel good about yourself. 
Now, we as you know, wise individuals know that drugs is a detriment. However, if you're highly impressionable, you might be open to somebody tricking you into thinking that that detriment is an asset when it is in fact just a detriment. So it all depends on like the juxtaposing forces that are telling you the truth, right? You need to have, as an impressionable individual, you would have to have juxtaposing influences in your life, like a wise uncle, a good mother, or someone saying, whoa, 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 that's, you know, you're highly impressionable, but you need to stay away from those people and like, listen to me, right? So it, it takes like a lot of wisdom to, to actually be able to discern what's good or what's bad uh, for oneself, especially when you're young and impressionable. Well, man, and the thing is that people don't stay impressionable forever, especially, I mean, especially know it, know it about yourself, because that's like, a, that's part of the beginning of wisdom, is that, you know, um, a little bit of self-knowledge goes a long way. So if um, hopefully, no matter how young, no matter how young in mind and heart we start, we start, uh, we don't, we don't end up that way forever. We don't, we don't travel along those lines forever. But at the same time, you know, being impressionable is not necessarily even even if like I said um, let's just say that yeah let's just say we find somebody who is in fact impressionable and impressionable to the very core it's not necessarily a bad thing because there's a part of I think there's a part of us that needs that there's a part of us that needs that needs to be um, how do you say to be impressioned upon to be <laughs> um, to be impressed upon um, because you can't figure everything out on your own it's not possible. It's important for us to know to know that it's uh, it can be an asset, but it can only it's it's only even even if we even if we are impressed upon by you know wicked and unkind people, it's a lesson learned uh, because we've learned something and of course of course we didn't have to learn it that, that way but it's it's still learned and hopefully without too much uh, um, too much of a, a how would say a destructive consequence, um, but. I would say that it's still a good, there's a good part, there's a, there's a necessary part being, um, to being impressed upon by others. Um, because that's how, that's, how we, that's how changes come ourselves. I think you actually touched upon something quite brilliant. And that is when we think of uh, self-discovery or, you know, Socrates, like, you know, the examined life and all that other stuff, we typically think about a guy going into a cave the long beard and meditating in there for like 10 hours and just thinking about himself and thinking about himself. And then he'll emerge from the cave after like, you know, a year and be like, I know myself, I know everything about myself, but that's not actually the road towards self-discovery. It has nothing to do with going into a mystical cave and then an owl starts talking to you and all this other stuff. It's right. It's actually experiencing different things in the world and then your core speaks to you and says, you know, I don't really feel good at this party right now. Or, you know, I, I don't really like hanging out with these people. Or, ooh, you know, when I was hanging out at the chess club, I kind of felt myself. There was something that just sparked in me and made me feel good about myself. So I think that in order to know yourself, you first have to be fairly impressionable and experience different things before it's like a it's like a, a trial and error type of thing. You have to experience different philosophies, hang out with different people, different modes of thinking. And then some of those things are going to click with you and some of those things are not going to click with you. You'll never be able to discover who you are 
unless you kind of go through this very nasty, ugly trial and error process. Well, yeah, I wouldn't say that you, you can't do it without that, but I would say that it's definitely um, it's definitely still a um, it's definitely still a road and a very common road, you know. Um, so, and I agree with that. I think you know it's it's part it's part of the human process. It's part of the it's part of the way we grow up, and um, without those people and situations and um, those uh, impressions that people make on us and and uh, we we don't we don't it's 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 it shapes it shapes our soul it molds us you know and uh, the hope is that it molds us for the better and not for the worse though i do believe that people are responsible eventually for their for who they are um, um there are still there are still those who do have a hand in destroying a person's life so um so I, I do think that it's not totally a bad thing, and I think that it's necessary for the developments, usually, for the for the developments of the of the human soul. It has to come a time when it slows down, and uh, we become, you know, much wiser with how we go how we go about it. Yes, absolutely, and there has to be boundaries here because if you're, let's just say, and I have met these people before. Let's say you're a young man. And you're not, you're very closed-minded. And, you know, we have this idea that, like, as you get older, you become closed-minded. But there's actually a lot of closed-minded young people out there. It, it, it happens, you know. And in a way, they could be like, I know myself. I know I like this. I know I like that. But in fairness, they are not really fulfilling Socrates' values or mission. Because if someone says, for example, um, I don't like tacos. Okay. Let's just say that they say that I don't, I don't like tacos. And then someone goes up to them and says, well, have you ever tried a taco before? And they go, no, it kind of like, it kind of like wears at their case a little bit, right? Like, because one could say to themselves, like, how do you know anything about yourself unless you've been tested within that particular set of circumstance? So it's almost as if you have to you have to kind of go through the variety of different things and then actually fit. Like, it's not enough to just say, I don't like that. You physically have to do that thing and do it once and then say, yes, I, I can definitively say I don't like that because I've tried it and it didn't work out. Do you, do you think, or, or do you think it's possible to say, no, I don't like tacos and just instinctively know that without actually trying the taco? What do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's possible to, to just, to, to, you know, to instinctively know that you don't like tacos. So even if it's not, it's not if it, even if it's not instinctive, just intellectually know that and not have to try it. So if you know that tacos is a mixture, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a combination of uh, certain vegetables like, you know, um, uh, I think cabbage, lettuce, and um, tomatoes, uh, cilantro, onions, spread out, you know, on a, on a uh, tortilla, soft or hard shell tortilla, and in it is some meats and a certain sauces, you know, avocado, whatever. Um, and he thinks there's a, okay, first of all, let me, let me start with this. I'm not a big fan of onions, so check. Not a big fan of tomatoes, check. Not a big fan, and then you, you just know these things and you know that this taco has 60%, is, is made up of 60% of things you do not like. And to remove those 60% of those things, well, it wouldn't be a taco now, would it? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you can, I think it's possible to say you don't like something without, without trying it. 
Um, and it's also possible to, and even if it's not for the sake that you don't, um, you know, this would be a bit strange, wouldn't it? But even if it's not the fact that you don't like certain things in it, but just have, know, know that certain foods, I mean, perhaps the way it's eaten, perhaps the way it's, uh, certain foods don't, don't mix with you. But, and it, it, may, it may be serious, it could be also be shallow because, you know, four years down the line, you're like, he's eating something in the dark. He's like, what is this? Like, it's a taco. It's like, I love it. <laughs> you know, I've wasted 10 years of my life. <laughs> Um, so I think it's possible. I think it's possible to know that seriously, but I also think it's possible to know it in a very shallow sense. Um, well, um, here, I, I could challenge it a little bit. So like, I used to not like mustard. And why did I not like mustard? I think I probably dipped a French fry or maybe I just tasted mustard by itself. And I said, man, mustard sucks. I don't want to ever eat mustard. But one day I ordered like this hot, steaming hot, like corned beef sandwich. I know you're a vegetarian, but for me, I was like salivating because I'm a carnivore. But and I. The what? Who's the hell's a vegetarian? Me. Oh, you're not? Oh, sorry about that. I thought you said that once. Okay, cool. Welcome to the carnivore club, brother. <laughs> oh, I never left, my man. I never left. Awesome. All right. So you can appreciate this even more. So. I order, I order like a corned beef sandwich. It's smoking hot. And I see there's mustard on the table and I put it on the corned beef sandwich and it tastes delicious. And I'm like, I can't even imagine eating this sandwich without mustard. But when I had independently tasted mustard, I said, no, 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 mustard is evil. I never want to try it or whatever like that. So there is this argument to be made like until you've tried it all, you really, you really can't in fairness fully reject something until you've tried it. And that's why people will make the argument, well, in your 20s or, or in your teenage years, whatever it is, there should be a period where you're at the buffet. You, you should be at the buffet. You should try everything at the buffet because only until you've tried everything at the buffet do you have the definitive knowledge that you would not like or dislike that thing. Well, it's partly, I would say, sure. But at the same time, it's like, okay, um, how far how far are we willing to take that? Because if, if we're talking about food, I can get behind that and say, okay, sure. I would, though I wouldn't say that, you know, a person isn't, couldn't reject food simply on, you know, um, uh, on a basis of thoughts. I would say, fine, it's still encouraged for a person to try all foods. Then, okay, then where does it end with the, with the trying of the things? You know, like, okay, I, I certainly know that I don't, really care much for killing a human then you know do i just pop one in the you know <laughs> just pop one on a stranger on the street and say you know what i yeah and i'm not now i'm certain that i really don't like you know the idea of you know um, taking a life or um or something along those lines you know what i mean um there is there has to be there has to be i would say that there has to be a place where we know where we, we become confident in our ability to understand on a mental note, on a, on, a, on a personal mental intellectual note saying, okay, even an emotional one, saying I don't, you know, I don't like this thing and I don't, I don't want to be a part of this thing. Now, I, don't, I may not know the fullness, you know, the fullness of the, I may not have the fullness of the experience in my, you know, in my categories and in, in my back, in the background informing me why I do and do not like it. But, um, but it's part of it's part of it's part of it in the sense of it, the choice to the choice 
is part of it. The choice, the choice to, um, to for one reason or the other, maybe on a rational, maybe sometimes irrational um, basis to like or dislike something. It's, I, I think it's, I think it's not, it may not be a um, scientifically valid way of going about life, but I think it's a, I think it's valid in the sense of it's still the part, it's still part of the human, it's part of the human's choice. It's part of that person's choice. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that there is, there is a value to, to trying things, but I think there's also, there's also a way to know, there's also a place to know when, um, when either it's not necessary or, uh, or it becomes, you know, um, troublesome. This is where something like the law is just wonderful because what we need, what we need is impressionable experiences within boundaries. I think that's the, the, that's what we're really looking for. And I think, you know, obviously like, yeah, man, you got to try murder or something like, no, like, you know, <laughs> you don't need to try murder or whatever. That's ridiculous. So there is like a society needs to encourage being impressionable but within certain confines i think the law does a good job of stipulating like okay um you may like to do this thing but it's illegal and sorry about that you know your curiosity ends at, at the gate over here and i think i think that's a positive thing because there are certain things that you might try out when you're younger and they could actually do uh, everlasting damage. They, they, they could absolutely just scar you for life. And you're never, you're, you're not kicking out of that. You know, if I, if I eat a sandwich that has the wrong type of mustard, you know, I might drink a lot of water, but it's not going to leave a scar. It's not going to scar me for life. Like I've never come across a sandwich on rye bread that was so bad that I had everlasting trauma, you know, so. An interesting therapy session, that's for sure. <laughs> You know, man, yeah, I'll be telling Doc, I had this roast beef sandwich when I was 21. And I, I just, you know, it all went downhill from there, you know. Right. So definitely there, there needs to be this 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 boundary of safe, I guess, safety or or, or acceptability that makes sure that you're trying things uh, within that acceptable range. And I do believe that you have to try things. I, again, within within the boundary of the law and within the boundary of acceptability, you do have to try those things. And then once you've tried it, even if it was just once and you went yuck or whatever, like five seconds later, you're then able to write those things off and say, hey, th that is not a part of me. That's not for me. Because you actually have like the, you, you kind of have that uh, red pill matrix moment where you saw what the reality was, or you saw what that actually thing was for what it is, not, not your, because when you're, before you eat, before you take a bite of that sandwich, it's purely imagination. It's purely conjecture as to what it will taste like. It's not until you take the bite of the sandwich that you're able to definitively say, I dislike it, or I do like it. Yeah. Well, look, no, oh, that's the thing is, is that I think you can, I think a person can take can make an objection on a sandwich or a food of any kind, just simply on a um, on, on a personal mental notes. In the sense of, if I know, if I know that it's a um, um, what, what like a like a for example a tripe sandwich, right? So shit, the stomach, is it uh, um, the the lining in the the, the, in, the linings of a of a cow's stomach, I believe. So it's a tripe sandwich, and I know that okay. First of all, I find it incredibly disgusting. 
And I go, <laughs> like, if I find that, it's incredibly disgusting. No, that doesn't mean it doesn't, it's not any fault of the sandwich. Sandwich could be perfect. Could be really good. Could be a really good sandwich. But if I find that, you know, I personally don't like the idea of eating tripe, then, um, then I think that's perfectly fine because it's, it's, it says, you know, now that's not to say, and now I can't say definitively that it's a bad sandwich. That's, that's where it's, that's where the, the, the problem arises, right? Now I can say that no, the idea of eating that bothers me. I don't like that. It's, I, I reject that simply on the, on the, on the, on the basis that it's sheep stomach or it's not sheep stomach, it's a cow stomach or something stomach. That's for sure, <laughs> you know? Um, but there's weird things with this because I know people, I'll give you an example. There are some people that if they see a fish or a chicken that's cooked, but still has its head attached, they can't eat it. They're like, no, no, it has a head and it's disgusting or whatever. It, it looks like it could cut. But then all of a sudden you cut the head off and then you, you peel off the skin and then you package it in the supermarket. And it's like, hmm, flounder, you know, but, but like, wait a minute. I show you this exact same flounder uh, that's swimming in a tank and has its head. That's disgusting and gruesome. I would never eat that in a million years. Now you see the same exact flounder, only it's been properly skinned and washed and the blood's been removed and the head is gone. Now, all of a sudden, we're totally cool having fried flounder for, for tonight. So this is where I think you have to actually put that tongue to the test and you actually have to take it to the reality because you, the, the imagination says, ew, there's a head and it sees me, it's looking at me, it's talking to me, you know, but then you cut the head off and now all of a sudden it becomes acceptable. See what your imagination is doing. Like the imagination of, of what something might feel or taste like is distorting the reality of what it actually is. Well, in, in a sense, yes, but in, in another sense, not, not really. It, it, because it's, it's, more of a, it's, more of an, it's more of an aesthetic rejection. It's, they're not rejecting the fish, the, 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 the flounder. They're rejecting the flounder with its head on its, on, on, with its head attached to the body on a plate. Now remove the head and you have no problem. So it's not that they're saying this doesn't taste good. And it's not that they're saying, because it's even the, the, the meats on the head is the same meat on the body. So it's not that they're saying this doesn't taste good and that we're not, you know, we're not willing to, um, um, and we don't believe it will taste good. We're saying it creeps me out that the head is still attached to the body. And which is understandable because many, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, uh, um, a lot of people forget that meats actually, where, you know, meat, meat comes from animals, you know, it's like I say. Um, where... Really? Whoa, I thought it was grown on the trees, man. I'm telling you, man, this weirdest association. It's like, what do you think pork comes from? I don't know, some magical, uh, some, <laughs> some magical place in, you know, in Kansas or something. He's like, no, dude, it, it's, it's, it, it comes from an animal, it bleeds. They, they, you know, they kill it. It bleeds. It screams. They gut it, you know, rip it to shreds, and uh, call and 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 call the different parts of that animal different, you know, different uh, different uh, uh, a different meat name, right? Uh, I like Homer Simpson. It says, uh, um, he, <laughs> they were telling him about that that um, that pork chops, bacon. And uh, oh yeah, yeah. And they all and, come uh, from. They come from the they, same animal. Right? Come from the same animal. Is this ah, <laughs> a wonderful animal, magical animal, <laughs> the pig. So so, uh, so one thing I want to say here is though, 
okay, let's say you serve the flounder and the flounder has its head attached, right? Yeah. And then that person takes a bite, they could actually trick themselves into thinking, oh, this tastes disgusting. You know, because I, I, and whereas if the head was removed, they would take the same bite of that fish and be like, hmm, delicious. So I almost feel like there is, there is like a, some kind of cognitive game that's going on here where the mind, the mind wants a specific outcome and the mind is going to have that outcome regardless of what the reality is. If the mind has already made its mind up that I'm going to dislike this thing or I'm going to like this thing, it's like the mind has already decided before the body even has an input as to what, what actually is going on. Yeah, it really can. It, it can do that. I mean, that's why it's basically what we call prejudice, right? But it's not just about prejudice. It doesn't have to do with simply people. It can be with foods. It can be with um, shows and books. And it's just we, we, we to, to judge something pre, um, 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 pre-knowledge, right? So without knowing something, you judge something. You make, you make judgments, you make qualitative, not qualitative, yeah. Yeah, you make qualitative judgments of good or, good or bad. And uh, it's human, it's what we do. Um, now we can't, now we, those, those prejudices can be corrected based on experience and based on hopefully reason, usually not the case. But, um, but I think there are still instances where those, that prejudice can be, um, uh, can be valid and be accurate, you know? I think, look, I, I think that it connects with impressionability in, in several ways, because I, I think that some people, and again, now we're going to the other extreme here. There are some people that are so close-minded, okay? And, and this is a danger in itself. They're so close-minded that they're willing to invent a danger, in like a false danger in order to protect themselves. And I think I think that's that's a very limiting thing and i don't I, I don't know if you can fully have a happy life if you're inventing dangers to protect you know a um imagined version of yourself you know what i mean like i think you have a you, you know i like this i like that okay let's test that out a little bit again within our you know healthy lawful boundaries of course mm. if you're not if you're not stress testing those things well you may you may develop an internal unhappiness because of what's that Robert Frost poem? Like, uh, you know, the, the path not taken or the road not taken or something like yeah, that. Uh, yeah. Something like that. Let me see. I actually did a podcast on that, um, poem and now I can't even remember the name. How shameful <laughs> the road, not taken, right. Got it. The road, not taken. Got it. So in, in this Robert Frost poem that, that I talked about, it's like, well, you might develop unhappiness later in life because of the roads that you have not taken. So you might, you might have made, you may, you may have made some clear convictions in, you know, earlier in life. I don't like this. I like that. Okay, great. Now, all of a sudden you're 55 years old and you're pondering, you're looking out the window and being like, you know, what if I had tried that? back when I was 23 or, you know, what, what, what if I had taken that job or what, what if I had, you know, gone on that summer retreat or something, you know, like, because, and that can also lead to some bitterness and that's some, some regret in one's life. Whereas the person who has kind of stress test 
everything, they're going to have less regret in life because they'll be able to be like, nope, I went on that summer retreat. It was an absolute disaster. Not for me. Nope. I took that job and I lasted three months and it was not for me. That person has less regret because they actually stress test what it is that they like versus what it is that they don't like. Well, yeah, but that's the thing. You can't, you can't, you can't, I don't know what you mean by that, but how you've been saying is you say stress test. Um, I think that you can't do that for everything. No, um, no. But, and here's the thing about the person who's fixing and regret things is that I don't think, I don't, I find it hard to believe that the person who is 50 or in their, in their, in their old day, old, you know, uh, last days, um, not the 50s last days, but you're getting up there, mate, um, is that I don't think that a person like that is, is the kind of, so let, let me say like this, when, when you're young and you're making decisions, you have to really, you got to ask yourself why you're making, you know, certain decisions is that what I found is that people are often very dishonest with themselves. And we don't really, even, even what we affirm or what we, what we dislike, what we, what we reject, often we don't do it by honest means. We do it by very self-deceiving very self, uh, and strange, um, um, strange means. So, you know, you have the person who took the job, not because they honestly assessed whether or not they cared for the job or wanted to take, you know, wanted wanted to be a part of that working situation, but it took the job because they wanted to impress their parents. And you find that, you know, and that's what, that's, that's they'll never admit that to themselves in the moment, but that's why they did it, you know? Um, so I don't believe, I find it hard to believe, I would say that a person who has been incredibly honest with themselves throughout their life and making decisions based on what they believe is either, a, you know, because not all, some rational decisions one one decision, or uh, should I say, um, one yeah, one reason for 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 one person is rational, while the same reason for another person is irrational. So it all depends on your own philosophy of life and how and and your you know wh where you where you stand, how you see this life, you know. Because if if you're being honest to your own ideas of what life is like and what life actually is and how it plays out and how you see this world. And you're making decisions based on your own philosophy of life and how you see this world, you know? I find it hard to believe that one will have regrets at that age. And even if one does, it's, I would say that it will be fewer, fewer, fewer and further in between. Um, so there is but, a piece of data that, that can perhaps help us out. There have been a lot of psychological surveys where psychologists have gone into nursing homes. And they'll ask the people, you know, and, and, and we're not even talking about people in their 50s. We're talking about people, you know, closer to death. And they'll ask them, what, are, what is your greatest regret in life? And the psychological surveys, 90% of them say, it's always statements of, I should have done this. I should have done that. Like most people don't have regret about the things that they actually ended up doing. They have more regret about the things that they ended up not doing. So. I could see that if you start, if you live your life in a, in the straight and narrow and are very close-minded, you know, we do have this again, take, you know, it's psychology, take it with a grain of salt, but we do have a lot of elderly people towards the end of life. Most of their statements are not things like, oh my goodness, I regret killing my brother. It's not things like that. Most of it is like, man, I, I should have, and it could be something. It could, <laughs> yeah. It's usually, it's usually small things like, 
I should have gone on that Hawaiian vacation, or I should have mm-hmm. spent more time with my wife, or I should have, uh, you know, you know, taken that trip to Europe. So a lot of people do have regret over the things that they did not do, which kind of sheds a little bit more light on the give it a try kind of attitude. Well, that's the thing is that this is where my pessimism for humanity, for humanity shows its head, she wears its ugly head once more is that I, I believe that most people, an elderly and our generation included, have lived lives often that are unexamined, simple and short. I believe that these people have made decisions, and many of us are still doing the same thing, making decisions for all the wrong reasons. We have never really, a lot of us make decisions simply because of monetary gain. When we, when we publicly affirm um, when we publicly affirm that we believe that family is important, yet we we make decisions for monetary gain, and we, and when 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 there's a conflict between family and finances, we choose finances. My point is that we don't live by what we say, what we believe, what we what we say we believe. You know what I mean? So often you find that, and I, I have no um, no qualms against elderly, and no qualms against my, uh, uh, my against my generation and so forth, but I just have this. If this is what I see. I think that we are very inconsistent people. And because of our inconsistency, because we're inconsistent, it comes and enhances us in the days of our in the days of our death. Because we are now faced with the outcome of the life we've lived, first of all. Second, we know that there's no second chances. And so these are the things that we have to deal with. So if you if you look at if you if you want to see an example of this, look at our look at our generation today. Look at look at look at the people between I would say 35 and under. We say things like, you know, um, we, we talk often about giving to the poor. We talk often about equality, egalitarianism, you know, egalitarianism and so forth. And we talk about love and we talk about, um, you know, fairness and so forth. But look, we are one of the most hateful generations out, out there. We fight each other. We destroy people who are not on our teams, quote unquote. We slander each other. Twitter is full of nothing but, you know, cat fights and folly. We... Um, I mean, look at look at the things we say versus the things we do. Let's alone now. This is this is just blatant public things. Let alone what we're doing and what we're doing in our private lives and the kind of decisions we're making in our private lives. Of course, you're going to have people growing up, our, our generation growing up, reaching 70s and 80s and so forth, and regretting the crack out of their lives, because these these little these little bits of inconsistencies, these little bits of unthought situations, unthought or um, visceral reactions. They come back to hunt us. And so I don't think it has to do, I don't think it has to do with the decisions made in the sense of what, you know, what we, um, what we didn't try. I think it has to do with the decisions made in the sense of why we made those decisions and those decisions being very contrary to what we've proclaimed or what we truly deeply believe. I, I, I hear you on this. Maybe I can kind of show, and you know, I'm going to test this hypothesis with you, and then you tell me where I'm going wrong. Do you think that perhaps people's narrow-mindedness is what actually leads to the loss of experience? And I'll give you an example of this. Let's say I grow up in a household, or and I personally adapt the value that money is of paramount importance. It comes 
above all else, my career. And there are people like this, you know, you'll meet the doctor or the finance person or whatever it is. And they're like, oh my God, take a day off from work. I can't do that. Uh, that's absurd. Uh, you know, leave my job for a week and, you know, take a road trip. No, I, no I'm not going to do that. Right. And their life remains like unexamined because no one pushed them out of their comfort zone. There was no one in their life. There was no boss in their life that said, hey, man, I'm forcing you to take a week off and do something with yourself. So because when, when you say the examined life, you can't know for sure that you would dislike the idea of a road. Uh, you, you can't know for sure that you would dislike a road trip until you actually go on a road trip. This is where this is where I say that, like, you have to actually like I could have a million ideas about how I would act in war. I could have a million theories. Maybe I would be a coward. Maybe I would be brave. I could have like a million ideas of what I would be like in a warlike situation. I'm never going to know until someone forces me into that particular set of circumstances. So in order to fulfill Socrates' goal of having an examined life, I think that you actually have to physically experiment. I think you will never know exactly what it, what you will do, how you will feel, how you will react until you physically make that experiment come true. I think all the conjecture in the world, um, you know, I, I, I know this with teaching. I've met so many teacher, you know, potential people training to be teachers and they have all of this. If I was a teacher, I would do this or that. I'm like, dude, you're not going to know anything until your first day in the classroom and you have 30 kids going crazy and you have to get them under control. You know, it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, you don't know yourself until you're actually thrusted into that circumstances, which is why I think to fulfill Socrates goal of examining yourself, you have to kind of throw yourself outside your comfort zone from time to time in order to truly see who you are. Well, that's the thing is that I think that's sort of true and the same time it's not. So for example, you had mentioned the idea of what you, what you would do in war. Well, of course, I don't think anybody, well, some people would say what they would do. And I, I, can't, I can't personally say, well, you're not going to do that. But I'd say, you know what, let's, let's wait and see, shall, yeah, shall we? But it's, that, that's a different situation because what you're talking about is the action you will take in certain circumstances. And in this, we're talking about a warish, a warish circumstance, right? Versus do you like war or do you dislike war? Now, I can say that I personally dislike war, having never been in war. Now, if I'm in a war, if I have to be in a war, then I have to be in a war. But I know that this is not an experience that I walk away from saying, oh boy, wow, I sure had a great time, buddies. Oh, wow, will we? It's like, you know what I'm trying to say? So it's like, there are certain things that one can, I don't know how I will behave in a war in a warring environment. I hope I'll, I hope I'll rise to the call. I hope that I'll rise to the call and do what, what needs to be done for me and mates, for me mates in the country. But to say that I like it, to say that it's something that I will enjoy, I say, no, I, I, don't, I, I don't have to experience it to enjoy it because I know myself. I know that there are certain qualities about this that I do not, um, and it's not even about, it's not, we're not talking about just the idea of war. Because I like how we've talked about war before and I've told you that there's something glorious about war. But I know that if I take in little pieces of this and that, but I know that generally I can speak soundly and say that, no, I dislike war. But if we're talking about a road trip, is the same thing. I don't know how I'll behave in the road trip, but I know that my general ideas about a road trip is, oh, hell no, I'll sit in a car for how long? 
for how long? You mean tell me, try and tell me, I'll see for at least for three hour bursts, bursts of three hours. And we're going to take a, you know, for example, maybe a, a 12 to a 15 hour road trip across from one state to another or something like that. And so, okay, there are qualities about that that I like and what are the qualities about that, that I dislike. I like the company and perhaps the conversation and the music and the, the music that we'll, you know, we'll play in the car. I like the junk food. I like the, uh, the, the aspect of lit, perhaps maybe stopping in the hotel and staying the night there. I like, so those kinds of things I know that I do like. And if they, uh, if they outweigh, the things I like outweigh the things that I dislike, you know, mentally, just checking these things out. And this is where it's very important for one to be honest with oneself. People, often people are not honest with themselves. They're not honest with themselves. We have ideas and clips that we judge things based on not, not thoughts and not actual, not actual personal understanding. So for example, you tell somebody, what, what do you think about the idea of a road trip? What flashes through their mind is Euro trip. The movie, right? They, they they have this idea of you know drive or journey to White Castle, right? Driving this idea of an adventure, going with buddies from one place to another, you know, um, being chased by beautiful uh, women, you know, maybe picking up Neil Neil Patrick uh, wasn't it? Well, Neil Neil Patrick Harris on the way or some crack like that. The point is that they they judge it based on these films they've seen. Or you say, well, you text another person, so what do you think about a road trip? And they think, oh my goodness. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's the first thought they have. Like, no, hell no. There is no way in hell, you know, I'm going on a road trip. And it's not really a, it's not really a, it's not really an examined thought. It's not really an examined thought. It's just flashes images like road trip good, road trip bad. <laughs> no, bruv. And so I find that that's really often what we're dealing with. We're not really dealing with. Um... So for me, it's like, okay, it's about really assessing the thing. And I think it's possible for a person to know based on certain factors. That's why questions are asked, right? It's like, okay, are we going to be, you know, are we going to be stopping at a hotel? Or are we going to be camping? Because camping, sleeping on that hard ground is not my thing, right? But I like the hotel experience. But that's not to say that, okay, let's just say that even in my own dislike, my own personal knowledge that I dislike road trips, that I we go on this road trip and I don't actually end up enjoying myself because of certain factors. You know, um, but it's possible to know what one dislikes. Yes, with trying, because it's it's that which you try that informs you of that which you don't um, um, of that which you haven't tried. So you make you make certain judgments based on you know based on certain aspects of the things you do know um, that are qualitatively the same as those things you don't know. So I know that I don't. I'm not a big fan of hospitals because of the smell, the experience, the blood, the, um, um, it reminds me of, you know, being sick as a child and uh, having to take this awful medicine and so forth. So just the, the, the feel of the hospital and the smell most especially is awful, right? So, okay, I know that I don't like hospitals. So, okay, what about a, what about a pharmacy or a clinic? Well, it has the same bloody smell now, doesn't it? Well, I know that I'm not gonna like that environment either because of my knowledge of a hospital. So I don't have to go to the clinic to know that, but I know that because there is this amount of drug, there's a certain amount of drugs and so forth. And but yeah, yeah. So I think it's possible to, uh, to 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 navigate one's way around these things. I don't. I, I actually don't think it's possible. And, and here's why. I think that you always. Same. Have... Same. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. I like. I like when we have uh, some, you know, earthquake, some some tectonic plates moving, <laughs> but butting against each other here. Oh, yeah. I always say it's not possible because right. there's always the possibility of the unknown. 
Okay, and and here's here's how I'll, I'll put this down. I was I was actually on a road trip once to Chicago and back from New York, and the car broke down, and we were you know we had to stay at a hotel or whatever. And if I was using my scientific mind, car breaking down in the middle of nowhere that that's like a bad thing. Like I would just immediately like my mind would automatically clump you know, would, would clump a car having a malfunction, having to stay somewhere randomly as being something inherently negative. Mm-hmm. But it ended up working out. We actually ended up having a good time and it kind of was an asset. It was like an added thing that made the vacation special that that actually happened. If you take your camping example, um, let's say you're like, man, no, no Wi-Fi out here. I have to sleep on the floor or whatever. But what if you actually get to that campsite and there's a lot of negative things that you've already pre-programmed, like coldness, dirt, not brushing your teeth, no shower, no Wi-Fi. But then during that camp experience, you see like a bear in the distance and it looks mm-hmm. at you and you look back at the bear and it comes close to you and then it runs away. And then you look into the sky and you see this huge constellation. There are all these like unknown variables and all these like permutations and random things that could happen that could actually flip all of your data and make that experience quite enjoyable and quite remarkable. But you have mm-hmm. to you have to be willing to be like, hey, it looks like, like the, the preponderance of evidence suggests that I may not like this experience, but there's always the possibility that something unknown or special could happen that could completely turn this thing around. Therefore, yeah. the only way to know for sure that I definitively hate camping is to actually go camping. But hold on, hold on, my good man. I do, I, to some extent, I agree and I disagree. So, for example, the, the factor of the unknown can work for you or against you. The idea that you could go camping and get eaten by the bear instead of <laughs> you know, sure. being, you know, majestically uh, presented with his, with his, uh, um, uh, with his presence. But or the fact, you know, you could easily have that car stuck on the road and you think, oh, and instead of having a wonderful experience camping under the stars, you know, you get beheaded by some crazy uh, sheep herder. So (laughs) my my point is, I I don't think that the the unknown, I do believe that the unknown plays a factor, but I don't believe that the unknown is a, how you say, um, um, the unknown is a factor that is for that is for or against you or myself, because it's simply the unknown, it's chance, it's that which will happen which no one knows. But I do believe that before, so in, so the unknown to me is just, it's a matter of X and X is undiscoverable until one does the thing. And so, but since X is undiscoverable, as far as I know, it's not a factor that I can, like, that I can reasonably say, okay, this is, this is gonna be, um, <clears throat> this is gonna be for me, Another can I say that it's going to be against me. So if when I make my decision, whether for liking or disliking, I have to make it based on other things, based on those things that I do know, based on those things that I have experienced, based on those things that I have thought through, either reasonably or, you know, um, hopefully reasonably. Um, and based on, so there has to be other factors by which a person makes those decisions of like and dislike. Um, beyond before the before or outside the the the, the boundaries of experience um, because to say to say that um, to say that the unknown can 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 be a factor in that I do believe it is a factor but I don't believe it's a, it, it can be a factor in in the decision making or the the the, the, the qualitative yeah the, uh, the qualitative judgments 
uh, towards the experience. I, I hear you because you're right. The unknown could turn out positive or it could actually turn out to be negative. Yeah. What about, I'm going to throw another one at you. What about the idea no, of, no. Uh, yeah, we're getting intense. I got my boxing gloves on today. What about having to confront that which you're most afraid of? And I'll give you an example of this. I knew a guy who, you know, when I was a kid, who was afraid of being in an elevator. Okay. He was just, he was afraid. I don't know what happened in his childhood or something. He was afraid of elevators. And what did every psychologist tell him? You're getting on an elevator. You're getting, you're getting your behind in that elevator and you're going to stay there and you're going to learn to, to deal with it. Uh, same thing with mountain lions. You know, you might be afraid of mountain lions, but then you go camping, you see that mountain lion, you stare it in the eyes, it runs away or whatever. And now you've taken the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And now you've overcome it. And I think that in life, there's nothing more rewarding in this world than brushing against the thing that you fear the most and actually overcoming it. A lot of people think I would just be happy going to Hawaii and drinking mojitos and, you know, uh, drinking coconut, uh, pineapple juice, whatever the hell, you know, like most people think that that's the idea of bliss. Whereas actual bliss comes from confronting the thing that you are most afraid of and then overcoming it having some kind of positive interaction with it or not being afraid of it, or at the very least being neutral towards it, that actually makes you grow as a person. And that actually becomes a part of you. Whereas if you're closed-minded, you may never give yourself the opportunity to confront your fears or to actually confront the things that you detest the most in this world. Yeah. But there's really, there's, okay. I, I can understand that. I mean, in the sense of um, there is a there is a very euphoric feeling that comes with facing one's fears and coming out of it alive and well, because unlike you know, because there is also the possibility of facing one's fears and being bitten by a ton of venom, uh, venomous snakes, and uh, not being <laughs> and being all the, even more afraid of venomous snakes. <laughs> So I think that's a, I think there is a bliss that comes from that. Uh, there is a, a euphoric um, um, feeling. Yeah, and it's it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine for people to face the fears. Uh, I, but it's also I think it's perfectly fine for people to not go looking to face their fears, at least not in the direct sense, um, but face their fears in the sense of getting rid of. I think you can get rid of a fear without having to. Um, like if you're if like for someone who's afraid of flying right you don't have to face the fear of um getting on a plane in order to challenge that fear or should i say even if somebody it's not people are really never afraid of flying they're afraid of crashing you know so, <laughs> so you don't have to go through a situation where you know like crashing and the turbulence is going crazy and you're like oh my goodness I'm, i made it through this alive um, I think a lot, a lot of our fears can be faced, can be can be dealt with, um, um, even on a personal level, on 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 a mind and an internal level, and if not just mind, if, if not just mind, something else, but on an internal level. But I do agree that it it is good. It is good to face one's fears. And, I, and I I still feel, and I know I'm getting a little preachy right now, but. You know, I, when I was younger, I was afraid of roller coasters, terrified of it. I would not, I would not go on any roller coasters. And because 
I thought just as you did, like a pure scientist, even, even, I, even though I was only 11, I was like, oh my God, look at the drop going, am, am I going upside down? And I just, from a scientific standpoint, I was like, me and roller coaster is not going to work. I had a camp counselor who said, you're going on this. I don't care. And I said, no, please don't make me go on it. And he just was like, nope, I don't care. Gave me a good kick on the butt. I got on my first roller coaster and I became addicted to them. I wanted to ride, I wanted to ride the scariest roller coasters after, after just being on yeah. one roller coaster. Yeah. And th this is what I mean about open-mindedness and being impressionable. Because if I remained closed-minded and if I refused to be impressionable, I would never, you know, I would have like ran away and never gotten on that roller coaster, never would have enjoyed the exhilaration of a roller coaster. I see, I see the connection, but there's a difference. Fear, fear and dislike. To, to, to fear something and to dislike something come from different places. Fear is often very irrational. Fear is very, you know, it's a visceral response. It's not really necessarily a thought through response. And that's why I believe thinking through your fears can actually help you alleviate them. So, but to dislike something, yes. But to dislike something is, um, to dislike something is not an irrational response. It's a rational response. You dislike it because you've thought through the thing and you found out, okay, I don't, I, all the factors that I'm seeing here, I don't like them. Now, I'm not saying that disliking is not, cannot be irrational. It can be rational, just like our prejudices, especially towards people and countries and so forth and ideas. But I'm saying that fear, um, um, unlike, unlike, unlike disliking, fear is more visceral is a visceral response that is rarely ever rational um while this to dislike something has has a potential to be more rational than it is a visceral um than, than uh, more rational than visceral i think though that you see for me thinking about something too much actually causes more anxiety to occur and i want to say this i think in order to dislike something you have to at least try it before you know that you fully dislike it. So for example, my girlfriend dislikes roller coasters. In fairness to her, I did force her. I actually did the same thing that happened to me. I forced her to go on a roller coaster at Disney World and she was terrified and said, I will never ever do that again. And I said, 100%, thank you for doing this at least once. I fully respect your wishes or whatever. Some people would call me an asshole, but whatever. But you know, I can say definitively that my girlfriend dislikes roller coasters because she went on one and dis and, and dislikes it. Like she had that one experience that was qualified and actually happened. Whereas if she said, I dislike roller coasters, but never, never, never went on one, then I would still be pushing her and say, like, how do you know? How do you know you won't like that roller coaster? Like, like, so I, I feel like to say definitively that you dislike something, you have to have at least one experience of disliking it in order for it to be tallied as a dislike. That's 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 where we disagree. That's, <laughs> that's where that's where we disagree. <laughs> middle ground. <laughs> We're in the quicksand. You know, there's this famous painting of two men fighting in the quicksand until... <laughs> Throw me a branch, damn it. <laughs> no, it's okay, man. It's, we can part ways here. I, I totally get it, you know. Um, um, so I want to I wanna maybe close out. And this is a good conversation, by the way, because I actually think the conversations where we disagree, the, the, the greatest... The truth happens 
during these clashes. I think the truth actually has a way of coming out when the swords are clashing, whereas when we're just hugging and agreeing with each other, there's less truth. But truth comes through disagreement. So thank you, my friend. Um, one thing I want to say also is, what is the difference? If, if you could say maybe, and I, I don't have the answer to this, what's the difference between being impressionable and open-minded? Well, I don't, first personally, I don't believe in, I don't believe there's such a thing as being closed-minded or open-minded. Oh, interesting. Tell me about that. I think it's a load of bollocks. Um, because when you call somebody closed-minded, how do they prove to you that they're open-minded? Do they have to agree with you before you say, ah, you are open-minded? Like what, what, constitution, what, what, what constitutes an open-minded person versus a closed-minded person? And can we, can we objectively point to um, categories of thoughts that's you know or or yeah or or traits that you know that actually reveal to us whether a person is closed-minded or open-minded and it's, and it's not just our own subjective imposition on the person because they disagree with us on certain matters so just because i disagree that's such a such a thing is x and you you believe it's you know um you believe it's y and that you believe it's x and i believe it's y you call me closed-minded and that's it. There is no, there is no, there is no opportunity anymore for conversation because, by the definition, you've, by your definition, um, um, or should I say, by your, by your placing me under under the category of closed-mindedness, what you're saying is that uh, my mind is well closed, and there is no opening that. There is no, there is no way for us to converse, um, and uh, and in order for me to be open-minded, I would have to, you know, uh, change my mind to your to your own position. Okay, I, I think maybe I can distinguish between the two and, and hear me out on this. And maybe maybe this could help a little bit. So I think impressionable would be you have to believe everything that I believe. That's impressionable. Like I like in, in this instance of like you need to believe this. I believe it. Fully believe it. Hook, line, and sinker. Whereas open-minded doesn't mean that I agree with everything that you're saying, but I'm willing to entertain your ideas in my head and examine them. Okay. How, how about that? So like you tell me a bunch of stuff, you tell me like, for example, if you, if you came to me and said, Aaron, eating meat is evil. You should never eat meat. You need to be a vegan. And I just accepted that. I embrace it hook, line and sinker. I would call myself impressionable. Like you're telling me not to eat meat. And I'm just being like, okie dokie, I'm, I'm going along with what you're telling me, right? Open-minded might be like, hmm, you're a vegan or you're a vegetarian. Tell me more about that. How does it help? What have you noticed? Do you notice that your cardiac, you know, your cardio activity is better? Is your heart rate better? So I'm not saying that I'm going to cross over to the vegetarian side, but I'm able to entertain that possibility without necessarily enacting it. All right. I mean, going about it like that, I think I, yeah, I can, though I'm still a bit, you know, skeptical about the terms, I would say, yeah, that does make sense. Um, it is, it's, it's, it does make sense. Yeah. Because I, I, I do feel like I, and, and where I think this becomes a societal issue is I think that a lot of people in this world go about their lives in a very closed minded way. And Again, I, 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 I hear what you're saying that you can't just like if someone if you disagree with somebody that doesn't make you close minded. OK, if someone tells you something 
and you say, you know, man, I, I kind of disagree with you there. You're still an open-minded person. Like you could, you could still be open. You could still be an open-minded person and not believe uh, something that someone else is telling you. I think, though, you become closed-minded when you're not even willing to hear or entertain what it is that they're willing to say. Because I think if more people were willing to entertain the ideas of others, that doesn't mean embrace, that doesn't mean adapt, that doesn't mean subscribe, but simply entertain other people's ideas with some effort, I think this world would be a bit of a better place because we would at least understand each other a little bit better. Yeah, but the, the big question for concerning that is, so what does it mean when, when you say entertain? How does it look? Like, does it look the same for everybody? Does everybody ask the same questions? When you say that a person entertains the idea, what does it mean? Because at the end of the day, people are different and they go about thinking. Whereas I wouldn't say in the sense of, you know, reason, but I would say they go about their, at least their expression of persons differently. Because a person, I mean, and there are some people who have already entertained the idea many years ago, you know, many, many, many years ago, many conversations ago, and you don't know. And you simply, and they tell you that, man, I've considered this and it's, it's a hell no for me. And you think, you still think they're closed-minded because they didn't ask the questions and so forth. My point is that the, the, I, I, I have no idea, I have no problem with people calling, people can call anybody, call each other whatever they want to call them. But I do believe that there are consequences for the ideas of, 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 of the labels or the, the categories of closed-minded versus open-minded. And the, the, the consequences uh, are, are, are very, very steep. It's part of the world we're living in. Um, and, 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 and then another one is, you know, who, who gets to determine? Who gets to determine? And this is in a conversation between peers and or even uh, students and master and so forth. Who gets, who gets to determine? you know, who is closed-minded and who is open-minded, as though we can see the internal workings of the person's mind and heart and soul. It's, it's, very, it's very strange, you know? Um, but say, say, say la vie. Okay, well, let's, let's, you're right. This does fall into a very uh, subjective category. Let, let's run some case examples here. You're at a party and some guy is trying to convince you to do yoga, okay? Mm -hmm. you're, you're at a party and the person says, hey, you know, I, I really started doing yoga. And then you immediately say, no, well, that's not for me. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And then you walk away. All right. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Like the person says, have you tried yoga? No. Is that open-minded or closed-minded? That's just the man. That's just a person. It has nothing to do whether he's closed-minded or open-minded. Because you don't know, first of all, that's just one instance of the person's life. Just because a person first, so there are many situations like that where a person is simply trying to be funny or simply trying to be, how you say, cute in the moments. Um, but even if they are serious, doesn't necessarily mean they're closed or open-minded. That's just one aspect. That's one aspect of a, of a yoga and a discussion of yoga is, is, is a 0. 0.000000 to the opt-in percent percentage of an idea. It's the, the rest of the world is filled with so many ideas and so many possibilities and so many, how you say, um, um, conversation potentials that to classify that person as closed-minded versus open-minded in that situation is, I mean, it's, it's not even, you know what I mean? It's, it's, but I would say that, yeah, the person did not in any way give it, any, give it the light of day. He did not give the idea the light of day. But to classify him or her as a closed and open-minded person is not, it's not something I, I'm willing, willing to do. 
you don't think that there's any like to be to consider yourself an open-minded person you don't think you have to ask a few questions like oh what has it done for your back or oh where does it take place or you know how did you find yoga or you know what yoga you you don't think it's at least decency like open-minded decency ask a few questions and then (laughs) you're changing terms on me is it decency? Are we we're talking about decency or open-mindedness? Where you come, you combine them and say open. I, it's a new <laughs> phrase. It's it's I call it's it open-minded, <laughs> open-minded decency, where someone is telling let okay, let's just say I have a negative knee-jerk reaction to yoga. Okay, for whatever reason, I have a, a cognitive illustration in my head of yoga as being something negative, all right? Don't I owe that person open-minded decency to be like, oh, tell me a little bit more. Oh, you, you do hot yoga. You're sweating. Oh, yeah. You, you, you know, oh, it, it helped with your, your lumbar spine. You were having back problems. Yeah, I heard that you were about to go on workers' comp. And you have a nice five, six-minute conversation with them. The guy says, do you want to come to yoga with me on Saturday? I say, no, no, thank you. But I had the open-mindedness to at least hear his like six-minute spiel, ask a few follow-up questions, and like, I entertained it. I imagined myself going there. I imagined myself doing the poses. I, I ultimately, I said, no, that, that's not really for me. I'm busy on Saturday. Fine. Fair enough. But I had open-minded decency to at least hear what the person was saying and entertain the thought of it. Do you think that that should, is, is like, is that such a hard ask? Let me ask you that. Well, it depends because I would ask, why doesn't the person, the open-minded person who is all about the yoga have a open-minded decency doubly and say my goodness see how he rejected it so quickly perhaps there's something about yoga that i myself am not considering so i'm saying <laughs> like, like who's to say you know what i mean like it goes both ways if if like if you're going to be open-minded to the umpteenth possibilities then you might as well then it's not possible for an open-minded person to ever call anybody else close-minded it's not possible it's just not if by the very virtue of being open-minded you're saying that you're open to every single possibility as an openness, even the closed-mindedness. You know what I mean? So you're open to closed-mindedness. Therefore, closed-mindedness perhaps is not even is not even a bad thing. It's an it's a it's a it's a, it's a potential to be explored. You know what I mean? So um, I, I I don't think I, I don't think it's a real term. I think it's just weapons. I think it's it's just it's uh, it's social weapons that we use to either discredit um, to discredit people to make uh, and to make ourselves feel better. I I feel like everyone ha- deserves their day in court or their day to present their case, and it could be for five minutes. It could be for ten minutes. Like, have you ever seen the show Shark Tank before? Oh, Shark Dude, yeah, it's Shark Tank, right? Absolutely. Now. These guys come out, some of them have great ideas, some of them have terrible ideas, but the sharks give them the two minutes. Like the sharks, you know, they give them the two minutes, let them do their spiel, no matter how ridiculous it is, no matter how silly it is or absurd and how many holes and flaws it is. You got to give them the, the day in court. You got to give them their two minutes to say their spiel. And then if you put your thumbs down and say, no, thank you, I still consider you to be open-minded, but... It's like, I'm just, I just got to open that window just a little bit, let them say their little thing. And then, and then I can reject them. No, no problem. But if you don't even give them that two minutes or three minutes or whatever, I do feel like you are, 
you're a turtle at that point. You're a turtle that has put your head in your shell and, and you don't even know what's going on beyond yourself. I, I do think that's kind of dangerous in a way. You're, you've become too calloused in a way. Well, it's possible. I mean, I'm not saying that that's not a possibility. I think there are people who are in fact callous. Um, but to say that the, 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 the potential is, well, all I'm simply saying is this, just to keep things simple, at least for me, is that uh, it's, it's not always as it seems. When a person doesn't give you the light of day, it doesn't know that they don't give you, giving you the light of day. It may be that they already, they already consider this idea and it means nothing to them. There's really no question to ask because they don't care. And to ask questions would be insincere. It's to just be playing games to make you feel better about yourself or some crap like that. But I do, I do, and I do believe there are there are personalities in this world that are just harsh. They're just, you know, they were raised by uh, uh, old um, old British military school gals, and they just they don't emotions emotions don't run the same way for them as uh, for the rest of the world. And so you call them functioning sociopaths. But they could just, just because they're functioning sociopaths and they don't give a crack about your ideas doesn't necessarily mean they're not brilliant and doesn't mean necessarily mean that they're not willing to consider other ideas that's uh, that may interest them. Um, I think that it's not a matter of um, it's not a matter of consideration. It's a matter. It's it, it, but should I say this? It's a matter of consideration on both of both parties. The person who is not considerate. And the person who wishes that the person who is not considerate should be considerate to them. Well, if you believe that he should be considerate to you, and you believe you deserve the consideration, which is perhaps maybe you do, then it isn't it possible to also believe that he or she also, the person who does not in any way consider you also deserves some consideration. So my point is that those who are open-minded present themselves as the superior beings, they're the superior-minded people. Those who believe that you ought to be considerate are also presenting themselves as superior beings because what they're saying is there is an art that I see that you can that you are not fulfilling. Therefore, there is a wisdom that I have that you do not have. So there is those who are superior. Arts to C.S. Lewis wrote many, as I forget in what essay he wrote this, but he says the greater always includes the lesser. The point is simply that those who are superior ought to condescend, if you must, at least, at least, right? Condescend if you must to those who you believe are considered to not be superior. So that's why I believe that anybody who is open-minded really has no, no teeth, no claws to call another person closed-minded. And those who believe that, you know, you ought to be considerate to them, have no teeth and no claws. They also have to be considerate to you, even in your, on, in your lack of consideration to them. Okay, Let, let's table the decency thing for a moment. Okay, let's just, how about, for your own selfish gain. And I think this actually happens a lot in martial arts, okay? There's a lot of guys out there who will do one martial arts. They'll do Taekwondo or they'll do karate or something like that. And they'll actually have a very negative experience with it. They had a bad instructor. It was a bad dojo. Uh, The instructor, the the sensei was corrupt and he just wanted to make money and he didn't really care about his pupils. They'll have Mm. one negative uh, encounter with martial arts and then they'll be like oh I'm never doing that again yeah. and if they would just remain a little bit more open-minded and maybe there's another friend that comes along a few years later and they try it again they mm. might actually find the right dojo where they fall in love with it and they're like oh my this is completely different than what I did five years ago this is this this sensei is awesome and these people are awesome and I'm losing weight I'm getting into shape and I'm learning all sorts of moves that can protect myself and so forth so 
forgetting about the decency towards others, I think you personally stand to grow by not being a sucker and just falling for everything and anything, but right. being like, you know, let's give this another go around because you might, you might, you might have had a negative encounter with something once, but then you do it a second time and with a different instructor and whatever, and that's going to be the that's going to be the moment where it ha- it all comes together. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I had the same experience with mathematics. I grew up in uh, certain boarding schools, never really cared for it, and didn't really get much of it. Came home once, my father brought me, uh, got me a tutor. Uh, name name was uh, Samuel Samson Sam something or something I forget, but uh, uh, very helpful. Very helpful, um, Samson, I believe. Very helpful guy, and uh, changed, helped me change my relationship with math for a long time. Yeah. But that required you to be open-minded to this new tutor, because you could have gone with your old mindset and said, "Math is not for me. I don't like math." But there had to be a certain degree. Now you were a kid, and you were forced to have this tutor and whatnot. But that, be that as it may, you still had a bit of open-mindedness of like, "All right." I'm going to give this new guy a chance to teach me math and maybe, maybe, maybe he'll be the spark. He'll be the ignition that changes my, my, my interfacing with this subject. If I say yes, Aaron, if I say yes, <laughs> if I say yes, open-mindedness. <laughs> it's a, it, it's a sand pit battle to the death today. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right, man. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be a gentleman. I'm going to extend my hand and be like, well, I reject keep... your dirty, filthy hands. There, there you go. Oh, you're slapping my hand away. That's it, man. Boo. <laughs> the crowd's booing now. All right, yeah, man. So... I, I think, I think, look, I, I, I can't, everyone has a perfect life for themselves and you can't, you can't convince someone how narrow or open-minded that they should be. I do see that there, you know, I'm making a point for the larger humanity out there that there is something to be said about understanding others and understanding yourself. The more you entertain other things, you might, you might discover that you really are repulsed by something or you really love something simply by the act of entertaining it for a day or whatever it is. And you learn an incredible amount about what other people go through and an incredible amount of what you like and dislike about yourself and i just think it makes you a much more informed person okay fair enough fair enough fair yeah. enough kenny yeah. uh thank you so much for opening my mind today <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad your mind was willing to be open bro <laughs> thank you sir have take care my friend take care my brother this concludes the 169th episode of the truth island podcast i'm aaron azrod